You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. What better day than April Fool's Day to launch our inaugural Fool or Forecaster episode? I promise this is no joke. We've decided to have a look at a selection of forecasters from the past year who have predicted property market price falls and rises to various degrees. Let's face it, in 2018, we haven't had any predictions of price rises. There's the usual suspects and some surprise entrants. Who got it right? Who should we listen to? Should we have listened to any of them? We also decided to look a little further back to a decade ago and see how buyers would have fared if they'd acted on predictions and top 10 reports that were issued back then. Now, it actually was harder than expected to go back in time, but we did find one report in the archives. Five recommendations were made and only one turned out to be a good call. We'll share our findings with you later in this episode. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. I think Warren Buffett summed it up when he said, forecasters may tell you a great deal about the forecaster, they tell you nothing about the future. I mean, that's uh, the brilliant Warren Buffett there. And I mean, when I was doing my research for this episode, which you know, it was quite interesting and quite funny, you know, looking at forecasters and back in time, um, there was a, a brilliant Harvard Review article and it said that, you know, economic and stock models play on our biases. We believe that models that have accurately predicted the future in the past are likely to predict the future going forward. But that is no more true than believing me when I tell you that a coin will land on heads up just because I accurately predicted it would do so the last 10 times. So what we're basically saying here is that you know, you've got to be extremely careful when you look at forecasters and track record is no better than looking at someone who has no track record because really, you know, it's so difficult to predict the future and, you know, it, it's, it's just so hard. And I mean, this is what I guess this episode's all about is, is you know, should we really listen to property forecasters? You know, are they fools? Are they real forecasters? And, um, you know, it's a really interesting discussion because, you know, every day when you flip open the paper, there's some property expert who's forecasting the future and we just lap it up. I mean, it's the biggest interesting point for us. We've done 60 episodes right now. And our biggest episode is when we did an episode on what's going to happen to the property market in 2018. And so I haven't even checked that. (laughs) It is. It's quite funny. So we've got amazing content, people who are talking about what's happening in the real life, you know, auctioneers, everyone. But what do you guys want to listen to the most is our forecasting episode. So it's really interesting just to think about this and and why do we care about it so much when it's the evidence is all not there. Yeah. And um, this is interesting, actually, because... Clearly, the experts agree, and you know we've we've both done a lot of re- research for this episode, and the experts all agree that it's almost impossible to predict the future. Everything's too complex, <laughs> and there are too many variables, and none of our human brains, and even if you're using computers and algorithms and all the rest of it, we're still not quite able to to really accurately consider all the variables that go into the future, and so therefore, why do people who are respected in their industries 
who actually are very learned, very educated, very experienced people, why do they continue to put their names to these predictions? Yeah, I mean, I think they all know. And I think, you know, economists know, forecasters know, they know that it's actually extremely difficult to predict the uh, forecast. They know that, you know, it's most likely not going to happen what they think, you know, because they've got it wrong, you know, nine times out of 10. But the problem is, you know, even if they do get it wrong, no one keeps them accountable. No one comes back and says, look, I used your advice. I went and bought, you know, in Hobart when you told me the market was going to boom or I, you know, thought that interest rates were going to go down. So I fixed rates, et cetera. So, you know, forecasters can say a lot of things, but no one really keeps them accountable. And if they just keep changing their story, people just keep forgetting and they just keep going with their latest story. So, you know, that's what probably one of the ideas of this episode is, is to actually start to, you know, bring a little bit of accountability to forecasts because, you know, end of the day, they're trying their best at some point in time, but, you know, they'll just always blame that new information came in and it changed the game. Well, you know, we spoke to Nerida Connorsby back in episode 58 and she did mention when we were asking her about sort of, you know, the realestate.com.au investor page and we're picking it apart in terms of what's in there and she said, oh, well, I'd hate, hate to think that investors would use only one data source. And I think the problem is that a lot do. And, and these these economists and these commentators are meant to be experts. And so, therefore, the inclination of the layperson is to give credence to what they say. And I know myself, when I hear somebody talk about the stock market, for instance, I'm not an expert in the stock market. And I do know that very similar things happen with predictions. And I'm inclined to want to go with what somebody who is very well respected in, in that industry says, because I'd like to take a mental shortcut and I'd like to quick track to riches. You know, I would, I feel that same pull. I understand that pull, but I do what, so I guess there's there's the draw or the demand from, you know, consumers to say, oh, we want this stuff. You know, I want to know the top 10. I want to know the hotspots. I know I want to know the shortcut to riches. There's also the hungry media outlets. I mean, given the fact that that's, you know, that's what people are clicking on, of course, they're going to want more articles that are going to get clicked on. And so therefore that's what they're asking for of their contributors. But then there's got to be the person actually giving the prediction. I mean, really, there's got to be a bit of ego in that, right? If you start to become a forecaster or a property expert, then, you know, you, your destiny is kind of set, right? And so you've got to keep going and keep <laughs> on uh, becoming, being that person. You know, if you're the go-to person for where the property market's going, then you've basically built a business around that. Then you start creating talk and all of a sudden you've created this kind of job for yourself. So, you know, you can't then come out and start saying, well, or maybe, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Um, you just got to keep <laughs> on, you know, talking about it. And that's what I think the problem with forecasters is, is they've kind of created a job for themselves and it's a job that, you know, that, you know, it's what you can't really face up to the facts that you don't know that what's going to happen. It's a bit of an odd one too, because there's like the chicken and the egg, you know, these sorts of commentary creates sentiment out there in the market, mm. either it's fueling uh, FOMO or it's fueling Fongo, you know, so the sentiment follows the market forces or is it the market forces following the sentiment? You know what I mean? It's really hard to know how much of this is actually created by all of these predictions versus the predictions creating what really happens. Get my drift? I'm not sure if I explained that I know, really I do. Well. And I, I've asked this to a few people on the episodes and I think they've all, you know, want to run away from it. But I do think that, you know, some people have got big impact, um, you know, and I don't want to talk about the Renee Rifkin story, but, um, you know, he had a huge impact on the stock market. He could, you know, 
due to his huge size of following, basically get investors to buy stocks that he owns. And then mm. once the investors buy those stocks, it pushes up the share price and then he sells the shares and he makes money. Um, and That's so- a really cynical way of looking at it. So if somebody has a vested interest, they can actually engineer it. And I think it happens, you know, and I, I don't think that insider trading, it happens in the stock market. It's pretty, and it's easy to do that, but I'm sure it happens in the property market. I'm sure there's, you know, people out there who can pick markets that are quite small with very low stock turnover and buying those stock markets or those, those property markets and create a story, forecast growth in that area. And then they're the ones who kind of start the party. They get the party going. And then while all the investors are still going, because they're still forecasting it, they're selling their properties in the background. and <laughs> You are a cynic. <laughs> I am a cynic um, because I, I do think that, you know, that some well, of the... it's possible. Well, I mean, you look at things like hotspotting, um, et cetera, you know, if without that recommendation by that expert on forecasting growth there, mm. would that suburb have grown? And this is interesting. And, and I guess we'll, what we're going to do, we're going to make a very conscious effort to start to really keep tabs on some of these uh, forecasts over time. So this is our first episode and we'll be putting together a report also, which is available on the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au. So you'll be able to download the report, which has more detail on the research that we've um looked into to put together this episode. And as the years go by, we have a full intention to really build on that. And we'll we'll actually start zeroing in on some of those things that we see. And we'll try to find out, is there really a story like that underlying it or not? So, you know, future years will be fantastic. This one's pretty good, but <laughs> they're going to get better. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, with that, in terms of hotspotting, and, and we've talked about this many times in this episode, uh, sorry, in this podcast, we're talking about if you're going to hotspot, you need to get into an area at the right time and you need to get out of that area at the right time, which is in the equivalent in the stock market is called stock picking, right? Yep. And so I found, and because this, you know, these parallels are, are definitely evident in the stock market. And so legendary investor John Bogle said that the following regarding stock market forecasting, this is his quote, he said, Sure, it'd be great to get out of the stock market at the high and back in at the low, but in 65 years of business, I have not only never met anybody that knew how to do it, I've never met anybody who had met anybody who knew how to do it. What does that say? I mean, um, <laughs> it's actually the, you know, the late John Bogle. Unfortunately, he died um, last year. and He did, yeah. He, um, he is pretty much, you know, the Warren Buffett level of someone who knows you know, stock markets, how they work. Um, you know, he's created probably the biggest stock market company in the world, which is Vanguard. This guy knows what he's talking about, right? And he's saying that in all the years of business, in all the years he's worked in stock management, he's never met anyone who can time the market. And I, I think it's true. Um, and I've been an advisor now for 12 years. And, you know, I, a lot of advisors will pretend they're investment managers and they'll say, look, oh, I know what's going to happen with the Australian dollar. It's going to drop from 70 cents to 60 cents. Um, and then the Australian dollar goes from 70 cents to 80 cents. Oh, we didn't expect that. Well, the problem with that is that, that one small mistake has a huge impact on someone's portfolio. And so then they've got to make another decision right. And they say, well, I invested more overseas because I thought these, you know, the US stock markets were going to rise. And then, you know, they, they US stock markets fall. And then, you know, and so what ends up happening is they may make a few calls right, but then they make a few calls wrong and then they end up cancelling each other out. And very few people can actually do this successfully, if any at all. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the ones that we've spoken about quite a lot, and, and I'm going to ask you about this, Chris, because you've met him recently, 
Oh, yeah. um, is a fellow named Martin North. Now, Martin North was quoted in a 60 Minutes interview, which we spoke about, I think it was out around about September 2018, and we spoke about it at length. A lot of our guests spoke about that particular episode, and they spoke with Louis Christopher, Martin North, and a few others. Um, and when they spoke to him, apparently he had put forward four scenarios, and they chose the fourth, the worst one, mm. and, and created a story around that. Now... You recently met him, Chris. In fact, he interviewed you on his podcast. Yep. What did he have to say about that? Um, Martin, I've, I've actually been on his podcast quite a few times now, and I really like him, and I think I think what he's doing is great, and he creates great content. I've learned a lot from his show, actually, um, you know, because what Martin does is base a lot of his research on surveys and actually is out there getting real people on the phones and asking him questions about the property market. Now, he then puts it into models and like forecasters do, he likes to simplify things as one market. And that's the problem with forecasting. Just generally, you know, the property market is never one market. But what he did in the 60 minutes is he did say, look, there's four things that could happen. You know, scenario one, you know, if, if things don't kick off, scenario two, if things get a little bit bad, scenario three, if things get quite bad, scenario four, this is if things hit the hit the wall. Um, and, you know, in 60 minutes, obviously don't care about the first three, you know, scenarios. They're going to like angle in on the fourth scenario because that's going to create the biggest news story. Um and that's going to create the biggest fear with the property market. It's going to fall 40%. And so you just got to be a little bit careful because people do get taken out of context. And, you know, as, as someone who talks to journalists and things like that as well, you know, we've always got to hope that the, the journalist does put what we say in context because if they don't, you know, a lot of our comments may, you know, be seen unfair or might not seem relevant. So I think that's what happened with Martin. I think his worst case got taken out. I think that's why the Kook, which we, we love the Kook, Stephen, he was one of our, um, you know, one of our great shows. Episode um, 43, if you want to go back there. Yeah, and, and Steve Kook, you know, made a bet with wanted to make a bet with him and say, look, I think that's a lie and, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And I think that's something that we should talk about is do forecasters put their money where their mouth is? Yeah. Well, I think this Kook's big argument there was that he didn't have any skin in the game. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, I think that was that was quite interesting, and, and from what I understand, Martin never took him up on the bed either. No, and um, Chris Joy, and I, he's probably not listening to our podcast, but he <laughs> is um, an extremely sm smart chap, um, and uh, you know he understands property. Um, and Christopher Joy is, you know, he's always writing in the AFR, and he's, um, you know, he's got he understands the banking model, he understands property. He's not for property or pro property or against property, but back in two thousand and ten. This is pre-boom. Um, you know, a big famous kind of forecaster in America, Jeremy Grantham, um, you know, and he loves going around the world and he gets a lot of speaking gigs because he's so outlandish. Came to Australia in 2010. This is pre-property boom and said that the Australian property market's going to fall, you know, 50%. And what Chris Joy said is, well, every 1% the property market goes up over the next three years, you give me a million dollars. And every percentage point in the market falls in the next three years, you give me a million dollars. I'll make an up to $100 million. <laughs> and you can see that um, Jeremy Grantham said no deal to the bet. And this is the thing, you know, people can make these claims. <laughs> but whenever someone starts to call them out on them and says, well, what, should, what are you putting in the skin in the game here? They usually run away. Um, but the big one that was quite funny and, um, you know, and a lot of people have listened to, you know, a famous chat, which is a guy called Steve Keen. And Steve Keane, back in 2008 in the GFC, in a, in a pretty horrible time around the world, which was fair enough, said that property prices would fall 40%. And he got a lot of news coverage, you know, for this point. 
But what actually happened is prices fell 5.5%, you know, and over the decade, you know, he's realized <laughs> how hard it was wrong. And what he actually had to do, part of that bet, um, he said that he would walk from Canberra to the top of Mount Kosciuszko in a shirt that some, said something about, oh, I don't know how to predict property prices <laughs> yes. um, and walk 200 kilometers all the way to the top of Mount Kosciuszko because he got it wrong. So, you know, I, we just got to be extremely careful when these people come out with these outlandish statements. Now, Steve. But, but what I love about him, he still, he's done that. He's worn the shirt. He's made the climb, the climb of shame. And yet he's still saying, I didn't get it wrong. I just got the timing wrong. Well, yeah, it's like true because <laughs> he did come back in 2011 and try it again. And he said um, between 2011 and 2013, the property market's going to fall 20%. So he. <laughs> He did change his bet. He went from 40 cent to 20%. He got it wrong again. 2011 to 2013 was when the boom went nuts. Um, and so Steve Keen's still around. He's still he's in the US now because he's given up on Australia. Um, and he's out there in the US markets predicting big falls. And he's done it in the UK. So, you know, but he gets a lot of airtime. And so you've just got to be extremely careful of these doomsdayers out there because, you know, their whole story is, is keep on talking about what could happen. So, you know, there's plenty of people who make predictions, as we've just discovered, and, um, you know, we would love many of them to come on the show. We've had a few. Of the ones that have made predictions over the last year, what have we been finding, Chris? (laughs) It's actually quite difficult to get someone's view on something because when we start searching back, um, you know, who's making forecasts and what are their forecasts, We've really got to check when did they actually make that forecast? What was the date? And how, how long is that forecast for? Because their, their, their views change and their views change extremely fast. So when I look at some property expert and if it's in January, sometimes when I read an article, that same person in March, their, their, their forecast is completely different. And so when I was looking at what people said and what people didn't said, it was so confusing because this expert said, in March, one thing. In January, they said the other thing. Um, and, you know, it's just so hard because they keep on changing their view with forecasting. And so, you know, knowing who's done well and who hasn't done well, it's really hard because you've got to kind of say, well, they made that in January. And is it from January to December? So one example is, is, is Shane Oliver. And, you know, we all know Shane Oliver pretty much is in every paper every day. He's on the news every day. You know, he's very famous as an economist and, you know, he's agreed to come on the show. We haven't got him on yet, but, you know, he will come on at some point. And it was interesting just looking at him because in 2016, he warned that it was, you know, quite dangerous to generalise when it comes to the housing market, which is, is a good point. But, you know, Sydney and Melbourne have seen their biggest gains. They're at more risk and they could fall by 5 to 10% in around 2018. So in 2016, he actually got it right. He actually predicted that in 2018, there could be a bit of a fall. He also extended that warning and said that apartments in both cities, Sydney and Melbourne, could fall 15 to 20% when the investor interest fades. Okay, so he actually nailed it in 2016 because that's exactly what happened. But then when you flash forward to the start of 2018, um, he said, look, you know, the market's going to fall 5 to 10%. You know, it's not going to fall 20 to 30%. But then at the start of 2018, he said that, oh, look, yeah, it's going to fall 5 to 10%, you know, but it's definitely not going to fall 20 to 30%. But what's interesting, you know, now in 2019, he's freaking out and he's now getting front page news because he's now saying it's going to fall 20 to 30%. So you can see that 
you know, over time, he's having to change his forecast, which makes sense. But, you know, he's one year he's saying there's no chance it's going to fall 20 or 30%. But then this year he's saying it's definitely going to fall 20 to 30%. So, you know, forecasts, you know, it's so hard to get it right. And it's so difficult because things are always changing. One thing that does worry me about a lot of these economists for banks, I mean, Shane Oliver's with AMP, is that I wonder how much they actually know about property and behaviour of property buyers and property owners. You know, I, I do wonder about that because I often hear them talk. I mean, I, for instance, Shane Oliver, I did hear him on a podcast. I think it was Mike Mortlock's podcast, actually. Mm. And whilst listening to that, I thought to myself, you know, he's got the experience of an individual who owns a property. But beyond that, I didn't hear any other real insights, property insights in that. I heard he's an economist. He's a banker, effectively. Um, he owns a house himself. But there's a monstrous gap of knowledge between owning a property and living in a property yourself and all that economic understanding, you know, in terms of the macroeconomics and all the rest of it. But the gap between those two elements I thought was huge. You could shoot a cannon through it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, like this is what I mean, Louis Christopher, I was actually on the way here this morning. Um, he was on the ABC and... Uh, you know, basically he was saying, look, you know, I've been doing my, I only literally think about this, the property market yeah. and that's all I focus on. And that's all I try to predict mm. is the property market. And over time and doing that for so many years, I do get better at it, you know, and I do. And this is the problem when you are being someone like, for example, Shane Oliver, he's trying to predict everything. Yeah. What's happening to interest rates, mm. what's happening to commodities, you know, et cetera. Currency. And, Everything. And, and yeah. it's so hard just because the property market, and this is what Louis Christian said, he said, you know, a lot of these guys do try to predict in the property market, but they forget that it's got such a behavioral and a yeah. lifestyle point of view. And it's something, even if it is overvalued or undervalued, that's not, doesn't, it's not like a traditional investment class. People don't live in their stocks. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's really different, you know, and if, and if you sell and you only own one property, and it's your home, then you still got to live in something. You know, you don't have to. If you sell out of stocks, you don't have to buy more stocks. You know, and I, th I think that that sort of fundamental acceptance of that is is often missing from a lot of the commentary. Yeah, I think Narita Connorsby, she, um, you know, she got that, mm, you know, yeah. and, she, and, you know, looking at a lot of her predictions and if you are listening, you know, a lot of them were pretty good, you know. A lot of them was, was you know, quite uh, understanding where, you know, interest rates and there was, there was a very broad thinking to it. Um, you know, and I think that's because she is focused on property, you know, and a lot of the time. Yeah, and actually what's really interesting about her in the access to the data that she's got is that she can actually see by behaviour, um, i.e. search behaviour. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about those, the, the ripple effect and they can actually see it in real time. And I thought that's really interesting because really and truly until you've got that data to support it, it's effectively a theory, isn't it? Yeah. And we see it happen. We call it. It's got a name for God's sake. But... But the fact that they can actually see buyer activity and, and search acti activity move, I think is really fascinating because that's very, very micro. And yet she's coming at it with an economist's mind and economist's learnings and, and understanding, being able to put those two things together. That, that's quite a rare skill set. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, really. that data is just unbelievable. I think I said it on the show. Like, I just think that, you know, um, for example, like on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, you know, yes, they make money on, you know, $40 a month from members and things like that. But what they've actually got is data and, you know, and employment 
data of where everyone works, mm. who was swapping jobs, who are looking for employment. Um, and that data is so important for an economy because if you can understand who, how many people are looking for new jobs or how many people are swapping jobs, you know, that's our whole, you know, you know, everyone who's employed, you know, all around the world. And it's the same thing with, you know, you know, real estate company and domain. If they can understand who's looking for property, who's looking to upgrade, who's, you know, and, and then understanding that, that the, what people are wanting from property, um, it's, it does give you a lot more insights than someone who's just coming on and, you know, thinking, well, if interest rates go down half a percent, property market will go up. Or, you know, if we, you know, allow foreign investors to buy here easier, then property market's going to go up. It's such more, so much more complicated than that. So you talked about Lou Christopher. So what, uh, what's his predictions been over the last year or so? So the AFR, which is really interesting, um, I don't know if it's a mate of his, but he seems to be um, <laughs> winning the AFR. And AFR do a, a report that basically, you know, comes in on property forecasters, you know, in December every year, and they write an article and they say who's who's the best. Um, and he seems to be winning most years. And um, you know, and I think that's because I do think that he does look at the property market now. Whether you can take it all with the, you know, as gospel, you probably can't because. You know, one thing that he did say at the start of 2017, he said that Sydney and Melbourne would have gone, uh, grown really strong. Um, but in 2018, there could be a bit of a, you know, a crash. Well, it was sort of right. It grew it was, strongly until about May 2017 and it did crash in 2018. <laughs> and exactly right. And so at 2018, he actually got it right. But he actually predicted that Melbourne and Sydney would grow a lot more than they did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he thought they were growing double figures, but, you wow. know, Sydney was, you know, more like four or 5% for that year. Um, but it's interesting when I started to like dig a bit deeper and it's hard to find this data and it's hard to figure out whether this is true or not, but it sounds like, but the start of 2018, he changed his tune a little bit and he was a bit optimistic. Um, and, you know, so Start of 2007, he said it was going to be a good year, then it's going to calm down. But once it got to the start of 2018, he said that um, the market's going to boom again. You know, it's going to continue on. <laughs> so he didn't predict, you know, that it was going to cool like it did. And mm. he was one of the more optimistic people out there on the property market over the last year, um, even though it's, you know, corrected. Now he's changed his tune again now, um, which is fair enough. And he is predicting, you know, 20% falls like a lot of the other people out there. So it's, it's, it's quite hard. So he did so well for a few years and then, you know, it's, it's one year you get it wrong, but you know, that's the difference. And I think too, what's really interesting once again, that you've got people that know the property market and yet they're still predicting these macro falls. You know, the reality is that there are micro markets, there's markets within suburbs. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I keep harking back to Nerida, I guess, but she mentioned something about, I think it was Cottesloe in WA. She said, you know, Perth is shocker and it has. I was actually looking at some data just recently. I mean, oh my God, it, it's, you know, the better suburbs have gone up, you know, a couple of percent yep. in 10 years, mm. like maybe not even 10% in 10 years. They're the better suburbs. Others have lost considerably. And yet she's talking about Cottesloe. And I didn't check Cottesloe actually. Cottesloe is probably the most beautiful suburb in, in Perth. It's, yeah. you know, and but you, it does show that, you know, if you've got a smaller population and you've got a smaller amount of money with money, they're going to go for the best suburb, aren't they? Exactly. And this is where, um, you know, like people say, oh, a lot of people in the predictions game and forecasters were Brisbane's got a boom. Brisbane's got a boom. And that's what I was reading a lot. Yeah. And they just think it's got a boom because it hasn't. 
Yeah. You know, that's not a good enough reason in my view. Yeah, and that's well, that's kind of what they were saying. And, yes. and um, it said, you know, Brisbane's the next to boom, Brisbane's the next to boom, and a lot of the forecasters were saying that. And the problem is when you look at Brisbane's statistics, it's like, well, it's gone up 4% or it's gone up 5%. Like, you know, and so the problem is that parts of Brisbane have boomed and, you know, there are some yes. suburbs that have done really well and it's what you're talking about there is that, you know, some suburbs are up 30 40 50%. And so, you know, it's... Those, if you looked, at, if you lived in those suburbs, or you're looking to buy in those suburbs, when you look at Brisbane's figures, it's like it hasn't gone up. But if you know suburbs, it's gone up thirty percent. And so, you've got to be extremely careful when you're looking at this because what you really need to do is go in, into that market and then figure out well what part of that market's gone up. And what you might find out in in that market, in that suburb that's gone up thirty percent, houses might have gone up forty percent, but apartments might have gone down ten percent. And so you've got to be extremely, you know, careful, even listening to, you know, any type of property market forecast, because it's pretty pointless unless you get that deep and you go markets within markets in markets. We spoke with uh, Pete Wargent back in episode 24. He gave us a great overview of really where some value is in Brisbane and where their sustainable growth is. And Megan Hetherington in episode 41. And we also spoke with Hazley Cush. Um, and I'm trying to remember what, what episode that was, but he... Um, you know, he's a, he's a real estate agent in Brisbane and he was talking about, you know, the inner areas and the different suburbs. And so that was in the 50s somewhere. I can't think of the, off the top of my head what number that was. But this is this markets within markets, you know, that there are some very robust suburbs in Brisbane. Just don't go buying an apartment in the city. But back onto the predictions. One of the other things that people like to predict a lot is uh, interest rate movement. Yeah, this is what everyone got wrong. And this is like exchange rates. Most people get exchange rates wrong. and um, Everyone, everyone was saying rates are going to go up. You know, rates are going to go up. You know, RBA's next move is up. Um, but, you know, come 2019, what's everyone saying? Rates are going to be dropped half a percent. And all the news is rates are coming down, rates are coming down. So, you know, like it's a big difference. When you think that the interest rates are going to go from 1.5 up to 2, up to 2.5, uh, and now 12 months later, everyone's saying rates are going down, um, you know, it's a huge problem, right? You know, we, and, um, you know, I remember I just always reflect back onto, uh, you know, my time in 2008 in the UK when rates went to half a percent and in 2009, I thought they've got to go up, you know, but 10 years later, they're still at half a percent. <laughs> and so you've just, we just, it's so hard to predict, you know, these things and, and, we, and we, we, we keep a, trying. We haven't had a movement, what, for nearly two years, have we? Yeah. Cause they're stuck in this little you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, mm. um, you know, they want firing power in the tank in case there is a China collapse or if there is, you know, a world war or if there's who knows whatever there is, but, um, you know, or stock market crash or a credit crisis, they just want to be able to have that ability to go from 1.5% down to zero and push the economy along. But if they do drop rates, you've lost that ability in that crisis to, um, you know, a bit of fire in the tank. On those levers that they won't be able to pull. Yeah. Um, Yes, so and I think with the thing with interest rates, of course, is that every month you find out really what's happening. <laughs> every <laughs> month on the first Tuesday, they meet, and then we find it out. So let's just get on with everything else and stop, you know, stop trying to uh, speculate. So yeah, but just... I mean, I do laugh on interest rate day that um, about two thirty, whatever it is, two thirty one, I get about forty five emails from 
every yeah. broker or every person in the country saying, big news, interest rates are staying on hold. Yeah. And it's like, come on, guys, if you if you have got money, you shouldn't be thinking about, you know, what interest rates are doing today. You know, you should be thinking a lot longer that in ahead. And um, what they do with interest rates in one month shouldn't really, you shouldn't be running your budget that tight that no, you really that need interest rates to change. Yeah. No, I think, and that's what's been interesting with the the most recent downturn in the, in the market is, has been that this is the first time it has not been generated or created by increasing interest rates. Mm. So therefore that means that really the landscape is new. So we're trying to use the past to predict the future and this is actually new territory anyway. We don't mm. actually know because we've never been here before. Um, but there are a bunch of serial offenders. We talked about some of them um, in terms of these people that do like to continually predict and they don't seem to care really how right or wrong they are. And let's face it, statistics are that they're going to be wrong. Well, yeah. the probabilities are going to be wrong. So, therefore, they, they're just really liking a bit of airplay, I guess. There's always going to be raving fans of the property market. I mean, yeah. Dr. Andrew Wilson is one of them. And we've, if you're listening to this, by the way, Dr. Andrew Wilson, I've asked you many, many times to come on the podcast. You said you would. So, please come along. We'd love to hear more from you. But you are, and, and I do believe that you are one of the raving fans of the property market. You know, I love listening to you and I love your passion for it. Sometimes I wonder if you're overly positive. Yep. They call that a perma-bull. A perma-bull, right. Yeah, and so it's a, a permanent bull. So bull means you think that the markets are going to keep going up. There's also what you call a perma-bear, which is you think you're permanent thinking the market's going to crash. A little bit like Malcolm North? Uh, yeah. Martin so North, sorry. Martin North is, you know, he would say he's not, and every perma-bull, every perma-bear say they're, they're not, not. <laughs> right? And the problem is you don't know you're a perma-bull, perma-bear because you <laughs> pretend you're not. And so Martin would say he's not a perma-bear. But from the outside, you would think he is. Um, and yeah, he certainly th- seems like one to me. Well, but then some people think I'm a permit bull. Well, you have been accused that in the past. I know, but I'm actually not. I'm, I'm always talking about how you can lose money in property and to be careful. So, yeah. That's the thing, you know, and I think a lot of people would listen to this podcast, you know, sometimes people think that we are perma bulls and we are, you know, just the property <laughs> market's the greatest place to invest. It's where you're going to make all your money. But hopefully our listeners can see that they know us better than that <laughs> you know us better than that hopefully um you know there's a 10 million properties in australia but how many of those 10 million properties should you invest in i would say five, max yeah that's, <laughs> that's probably being way generous it? yeah i mean you know you think about it. so we probably only think you know our capital cities we think you know 5k's from the city we don't like main roads we like, um, you know, good blocks of land. We like great layouts of, of houses. I think we're down um, to 1% really, aren't we? We are. Mm. And so, you know, we are, you know, perma bears on 99% of the property out there. And yes. so <laughs> we are perma bulls on the 1%. 1% yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, and this is the thing, you know, so you can see these perma bears. I mean, a big one, I, um, I was actually guilty of this and it was very early on in my career as a financial advisor and, I was educating myself and this is what I think a lot of investors do. They, they start to, to find information and find sources uh, and they start to find people to follow. And, you know, when you're an advisor, you want to learn about the stock market and you want to learn about things. And I was guilty of this because I, I started in the career, um, you know, one year was amazing returns in 2006. And then in 2007, there was a bit of a shock to markets. Oh, wow, is, this could happen. Markets can go down, they can go up. Uh, and then 2008, I saw the GFC in the UK in 2009. Um, and, you know, going through that crash, it's made me very wary of another crash. And, you know, and what I did is I started to look, read and learn about, you know, 
people who believe in other crashes. And, you know, there's a lot of content out there, which what I call is from doomsdayers. Mm. Um, and they make their money. They've got businesses built on basically peddling stuff that plays on our fear. Um, <laughs> and they write books about it. And, and Harry Dent is one. Um, I read his book and I, I don't want to admit it, but I've read his book and I fell for his book and his, his book was the great crash ahead. Um, and he wrote that book in 2011 and, um, you know, and it made a lot of sense. We just had the big GFC Euro debt crisis. We're all going to stop um, spending money. And if you took Harry's advice in 2011, you would have put everything to cash. You mm. wouldn't have, that's the best thing. Cause you need to wait for the market crash of 40%. And then you buy in whenever on, um, when the market crashes and unfortunately, um, you know, that book was completely false. Um, and, um, Harry Dent's still out there. He was in Australia last month and he's in here saying that our property market's going to fall 50%. So if you write a book like that and people take your advice, can they sue you? No. <laughs> Why not? Because, uh, <laughs> Harry America. Dent, <laughs> and Harry Dent goes all around the world staying in nice hotels, getting paid big speaking fees, um, because he's a great presenter. Yeah. He's very, you know, engaging and, um, he seems to have a lot of evidence to back up his opinion. And, you know, it's very good to get good at presenting one slideshow mm, because you, true. and so these people come, they have their one little slideshow, they put it up, lots of charts, mm. they confuse people. They're so believable. And then you become what a raving fan and then you become part of the cult and um, you end up basically calling what something called confirmation bias. Yes. And that's something we all have to be careful of. I, I know it myself, you know, I, I don't want the market to go through a prolonged down period. I don't want it to. I mean, A, I'm a property owner and B, it's obviously my livelihood. Um, so for me, that just makes things tough. There's a silver lining to that. You know, when things are tough, then usually there's a whole bunch of people that evacuate the market, which is good because it's usually the ones that aren't very good. And, you know, for us that are left standing, we're working on our skills and our knowledge and all that sort of stuff and we become better at our craft, right? Um, so there's that's the silver lining. And I know myself, I'm, I, I'm an actor, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner, so I'm seeking out information all the time. And there are times when, when I read things, I want to reject it. Mm. You know, I have to force myself to push through that and really check its, its credibility, you know, and validate it. And so that's one of the reasons that I know, you know, like, for instance, the CoreLogic's Pain and Gain Report, that's why I seek it out every quarter, because I know that the truth is a lot of property does lose value. And so my message has actually improved ever since I've been able, open to that, to that knowledge and that learning. Well, that's and, true. That's the best thing you can do. Mm -hmm. um, so when we are falling, you know, guilty of confirmation bias, it's when you get that article and it says property market's going to fall, you don't go, that's nonsense. You, you read it and you start to fact check their facts and yeah. you start to... You read it and you start trying to understand it and try to start to question your own beliefs. And that's where you actually start educating yourself. And I think that's he's, the... He's a guy that the head of freelancer. Is it freelancer? Oh, Matt Barry is... Yeah. Um, so he writes quite a lot about everything. And beginning of last year, beginning of 2018, he wrote a big piece about the end of, end of the world is coming. And it was a massive essay that went right back to the beginning of time really and went right through the whole world and and then finally culminating on the Australian property market and how terrible it was and massively it's going to fall in a hole. And I read through that and the first three quarters of that was all about stuff I didn't know too much about. I didn't know too much about currency. I didn't know too much about equities. I didn't know too much about a whole bunch of things in the macro world, global markets. And so I was convinced 
And so I was ready to read the next bit and be convinced of that too. But when I started reading the property bit, of which I know a lot, you know, I'm mm. an, I am an expert in the Australian property market, if there is such a thing. Um, well, if you call you it. And, call yeah, yourself it. And I, I know enough <laughs> to know when I'm not as well. You know, the reality is that I'm not a micro expert in, in various markets. But anyway, that's segueing. Yeah. The point is that I got to a bit in that report where I knew more than he did. Yep. And I realised then that this is dangerous because this guy is applying all these other you know, the, the layer skills. of thinking and these other skills into this and it's actually flawed thinking. But then that made me doubt everything else that I'd read that mm. I believed 100% up to that point because it was so well put together and argued. Mm. And, and I wrote a piece in refute of his property section. I couldn't refute the rest of it because I don't know enough about everything else, but I know enough about the property piece. And I wrote a piece refuting that um, at the time. And I, ha- I had to do that, to be quite honest, because I felt like believing him. My, my, my elephant was believing him. Mm. And even though my brain knew that it wasn't true. Yeah. And so for somebody who doesn't know as much as I do about the property market, it's so compelling to fall for these arguments. Yeah. Especially when it's someone who, you know, he's got a bit of an image, he's got a bit of a reputation. He's seen as someone who's successful in business. And then all of a sudden he's now a property expert. Now mm. he doesn't even live in Australia, I don't think. I think he lives in Singapore, Singapore think, or something. Yeah. But he's actually on the front page of news.com.au last week. Talking so, about the property market um, <laughs> Yeah, and he's back, he's back again talking about the property market mm. and how it's going to collapse and how it's crazy, et cetera. And, um, you know, and, he's, and the biggest news outlet in Australia, probably the biggest online site, is that site. And he's back on the, mm. you know, the top articles again. So, you know, it is worrying, um, you know, especially when people who aren't in the property industry don't get it, um, come out here because people believe it. And, um, you know, I think the, um, you know, I think you uh, had some quote from Gail Kelly, which is, you know, the <laughs> yes. CEO of Westpac, which well, uh, I thought was quite funny. Well, we have to have some great gongs. You know, when we've been researching for this, this just stood out as being one of the most poorly timed predictions of the lot. She was speaking to an economic forum in Brisbane in June 2012. Now, people, remember when the boom started at the very end of 2012? She said the nation would never see another housing boom similar to the one experienced over the previous decade. And I just think, oh, dear. (laughs) We were on the cusp of one of the biggest ever. But there's been a few others that have made some spectacularly poorly timed predictions, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, and it's quite funny because she's a CEO of a bank. And so this is where we, whenever someone's making a forecast, you look at their name, look at who they work for. You start to think, what have they got invested? You know, do they want to think prices are going up? And Westpac, you would think CEO of a bank, she's going to talk up house prices. And what <laughs> she does, she does the opposite. And then the market goes into a massive boom. So it's, uh, it's <laughs> quite hilarious. <laughs> um, I mean, Macquarie was another one. Um, you know, back in 2016, they came out with this beautiful bit of research. Um, property market is going to fall seven and a half percent in the next uh, two years. You know, um, it's a bit, you know one of the big big banks. You know, and the and it's the Australian property market. You know, and well, so UBS came out with a lot of those reports with that that pretty much the same figure, seven point five percent. You know. Australian property over overvalued by seven percent. I think that was back in two thousand fifteen. Yeah, I mean they love to use world charts. They'll say that you know the multiples of Australian property market is twelve times, which makes us more expensive than Hong Kong. Um, and you know what's the Sydney property market got to do with Hong Kong? You know, or you know, or whatever it is in the world. You know, it's not really comparing apples and apples. You know, it's a completely different economy. It's migration, um, income. 
you know, foreign investment, capital controls. Um, and so, you know, we've got to be really careful when we start to think is an asset overvalued or undervalued and needs to correct because that's not just how the market works. You don't buy the market. You know, have you found anyone who's invested in the Australian property index before? That's not what you buy. You buy a property, which is, you know, one out of 10 million. Well, actually, it's um, once again in our research and there was a um, in Business Insider had sort of a panel, I think, the end of last year and and Cameron Kusher of, of uh, CoreLogic, you know, he's quoted as saying there's no standard on property data. You know, ultimately, that's a big challenge for the housing market. There's no one standard format for this information. Yeah. So, you know, that from one of Australia's, you know, leading commentators is alarming, you know, because that... That what that should do is put us all on notice that you've got to be very, very careful about following and acting on any of this information, that obviously they have great access and insights into what has happened. They can compare that to previous, you know, market cycles. Frank Gelber, for instance, back in episode, oh, I can't remember, was that 38 or somewhere thereabouts? So Frank Gelber was episode 37, I'm close. You know, he talked about the property cycles and said that they go for 12 years, you know, so there's a boom and a bust in, in every 12 years. And then you've got property clocks and you've got a whole bunch of different theories around this. I think what is important is that we've got to understand that we're basing everything on history and yet they're predicting the future and the odds of getting it right are so minute that to listen and act on them, we have to you know, really be careful. But in order to be careful, we have to go against our own instincts because our own instincts are to defer responsibility to these more learned, noisier people. Yeah. I mean, that, BIS shrapnel, I mean, through the research, you know, they were very pessimistic on the property market. Um, you know, not so much Frank, but other people at his organization that, um, you know, through the boom. And so, you know, they were, they were one of the guilty you know, people out there that were kind of not getting it right um, because the fundament fundamentals said the property Sydney boom should have stopped in 2015, mm. but then interest rates got dropped. And so then interest, you know, yeah. and then the- I remember the, that kicking it along in 2016. Yeah. There were and, two points of where they fell and, and that just spurted the market along. And so if you didn't think that rates would drop, then you wouldn't have thought that the boom would kick on, but then it did. So like- you know, one thing changes and then everything falls to pieces. And uh, I think your, your second point there around property clocks, um, what a great marketing, marketing tool. Marketing tool, <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, how much sense does that make to someone buying? If you haven't ever seen a property clock, we'll, we'll put one on the show. Um, you know, we'll take off who it's written by. But, <laughs> you know, it, it makes so much sense. You know, the property clock basically says property markets go in cycles. They go from a boom to a bust and they have a growth period and a slowdown period. And you can pretty much map every city um, on this property clock. And you just, all you need to do is buy it pre-boom and sell it at the top of the boom. And and I'll go back to that quote from John Bogle on that. Yeah. Because in 65 years in the share market, he's yet to find somebody who can actually get the timing right on both of those transactions. And it's the same in property. Yeah. And I mean... It makes so much sense, though, like to someone investing. Oh, okay, well, yeah, we won't buy Sydney and Melbourne are at the top, right? They're going into bust. Okay, so we don't buy there. Um, let's go buy in Brisbane or let's go buy in mm. Hobart. And um, the problem is when you get that wrong, um, you lose. If the boom goes for a lot longer than you, you think, and how do you actually come back into the Sydney market if you get it wrong? Well, it comes down to fundamentals again, and we've we've banged on about this in enough episodes where we don't need to labour the point now. But But certainly if you get... The right fundamentals, i.e. the right type of location, they've got to be underpinned with economy, incomes, population growth, 
all of that sort of stuff that underpins an area and then you buy the top quality stock, then you're effectively recession-proof in a way where other properties are falling in price. Yours won't or it will only fall a little bit and then it will bounce back quicker. You'll do better than everything else, which is really what the goal is, not to try to pick the right time to buy on whatever market is about to go up because that market long-term may have much shorter legs on it than a blue-chip area that might be in a different part of its cycle. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's exactly the point. It's it's when you're buying these hot spotting and you're trying to buy markets that aren't fundamentally as sound as the big capital cities like your Sydney, Melbourne, you basically have to buy in, sell, take your money and put it somewhere else. And generally speaking, you want to put it back into the premium markets because that's where the best growth is. And when you're buying in those suburbs, in those areas, you're not trying to pick and time the market. You're saying, well, I'm going to hold this for 20, 30 years. That's what I care about. I don't care about the next three years. And I think that's really important for it's the difference between speculating and investing. And you've got to figure out, are you a speculator or are you an investor? I think just to illustrate this, um, over time, if you bought, say you bought a property for a million dollars today and you sold it in 10 years, okay, if it goes up in value 5% compound per annum, you know, it's going to be worth, I, don't, I think it's 1.6 million roughly. Okay. I'm pulling figures out of the air here. If it goes up 7.2%, it's going to double in value. And if it goes up 3%, it's going to be worth like 1.3 million mm. roughly. Okay. So what that means is that a difference of two percentage points can mean hundreds of thousands of dollars over 10 years. If you hold it for 20 years, even more than hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. Whereas you might save yourself 50 grand by buying, you know, the right time of the cycle, but we're talking the difference between hundreds of thousands of dollars based on the quality of asset and the location that you're mm. buying. And so that's the type of, you know, that's really where you need to look at, not now per se. Yeah. Um, now, one of the interesting things, though, looking back, of course, and one of the reasons I know this is true is because a lot of research I've done is looking at case studies and comparing individual properties and their growth over medians for those areas and other properties. And so I like to go back, and which is one of the reasons I said, right, let's go back 10 years and see what we can find. It's been quite difficult for me to find reports. You know, I, I can be diving through pages and pages and pages in, in um, mm. Google on searches. But I did come across one report from... 10 years ago. And I, and I have to say too, that I've been asked over the years by so many journalists asking me for my top five or top 10 suburb picks. I've never felt equipped to answer this question because A, I'm an area specialist and B, I don't have ready access to the data that underpins the forecasts that other people are making. But I've also instinctively resisted answering these questions. And I've learned so much more since we started this podcast that now I feel my instincts were absolutely spot on. Because not as only is it nigh on impossible to predict with any accuracy what will happen in the future, but if you do manage to kick a goal this year, odds are that you'll stuff it up next year. That's a really good point. I, you can see the the guilty people here. Um, and, well, not in this room. Well, yeah, not, not in this. Yeah, I mean, they're not here now. But the actual the ones who aren't, they're actually Peter Kalisos, who we've had on here, um, he gets asked for these and he does it. Uh, he has done the research, though. Uh, and so Peter, and he's got very sound you know, views on what's a good suburb, what's not a good suburb. He also, he, gets has it wrong. A, he also has a format which is based around gentrification and there's a there's very much a methodology around that which, you know, I think is quite robust. I think he's really good and I think he's um, he bases on supply and gentrification and things like that. Um, but the other people out there, you know, I find that are doing it, they're picking these suburbs that are so far out of, you know, the demand and supply 
And, you know, they're just, they're making, I mean, really just rural kind of suburbs. And you know, I think these are the ones you need to be a bit worried about because they just don't hit the foundations of what is a good investment. Well, that's it. And that's, look, fundamentally, that is what underpins Peter Kalul. Kulazos, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Peter. Peter Kulazos is, uh, which is back in episode 33, by the way, if anyone wants to listen to that one, because it, that's all about why gentrification is the key to successful property investing. And, you know, they are very aligned with all the research I've done as well. And, you know, it, it does stack up and make sense. And there's history that shows that it's pretty much right. But then again, where he got it wrong was Perth. And, um, and that was because there are other things a play in that market. The yeah. mining or the end of the mining boom, well, the mining boom for starters pushed prices way over where they should have been. And mm. then, of course, the end of the boom meant that they, you know, they pulled the plug on it. And so that's had some some really external factors that have played an enormous part in that market. So within that, though, you would have the gentrification piece would be those suburbs that have had slight minuscule growth over that 10 years versus those that have lost money. So um, yeah, I mean, I think it was in that scenario there, he was just not predicting the mining boom to end as fast as it did and the impact it was. And so Perth itself just got smashed. Some of his Perth picks from my understanding were okay, but some of them, he really needed population growth to continue and it didn't. And it really actually people started leaving Perth. And when you start factoring that doomsday yeah. scenario of a big bust in the mining cycle, then um, yeah, you start to, you know, you're Bets aren't really there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the other reason for my resistance in in giving journalists those top fives or top tens is that you know property is a long game. So, try to ride, trying to ride those peaks and troughs is, in my view, a mugs game. So, yeah. what's the point of helping somebody try to to you know make a short term game when that's actually not in alignment with any of my values? So, we've you know discussed those fundamentals ad nauseum. So, let's let's just quickly the one report that I could find, which is. Is uh, it's actually an RP data, so precursing uh, core logic. It's a RP data positive cash flow or cash flow positive report from nine. Sorry, from two thousand and eight. So Cameron Kusher had only just joined uh, the organisation at that time, and his quote was: "More and more investors will be looking to purchase cash flow positive properties in order to reap the benefits of a return from their property and to also capitalise future property value growth." With vacancy rates now the lowest they have been for years, which is very different to now, I might say, in Sydney anyway, coupled with strong rental growth and minimal property value growth, we anticipate that more and more properties will be moving into cash flow positive territory over the coming years. So even that's a prediction that hasn't actually necessarily came true. Now, there were 45 suburbs in that report. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to come across the report itself. I've only been able to find reports or articles based on that report. And of those of five of the suburbs that I could find, um, I just thought I'd quickly run through them for you. So, I mean, good choice of <laughs> report. I mean, positive cash flow report. This mm. is nothing to do against RP data. I love their work. And, you know, Cameron is going to come on the show at some point. But, and, and, and in fairness to Cameron, a lot of his, you know, predictions, they've got great data. They've they got, have got great and data. And so, you know, the, when you start cutting that data up and you look at the whole cities and essentially they're probably one of the sources that you can start to look at some of their, their reports and things like that and have a lot more faith in them. But I mean, this one, it's a horrible report, positive cash flow, because we <laughs> hate that view of positive cash flow. But how did you go with these? Because this to me is, you know, asking for trouble. Well, yeah, exactly. So number one, forest in ACT for units. Okay. So a little quote um, that I found was the best suburb was Forest in Canberra, where investors in a median price unit, 490,000, would be cash flow positive by around six grand a year. Now, 
Well, I looked into this and the, the data, uh, my source for data was PriceFinder. Um, and I could see that there was a spike of supply between 2006 and 2010 through new unit development. So the median price increased from 447500 in 2007 to 675000 in 2008. So um, once again, that is interesting and that is bought, had a median price of four ninety, which is obviously close to 2007's median. So that went up so rapidly because of the new stock coming on the market. So a lot of new developments. So new stock comes on, sells at a premium that old stock doesn't sell at. Um, mm. And so, the, of course, the median's going to go up. There's a lot more property being sold and it's all new. So fast forward to 2018, a new development has halted uh, with only 24 apartments selling mm. right that year. And the thing is that um, the median unit price in 2018, I remember 2008, it was 675. 2018, 40. So median over 10 uh. years have gone down. Rents have also stalled. So this is put forward as being great positive cash flow. Right. Um, and so, A, you've got no capital growth, right, zero or slightly negative. Um, rents stalled. I've, I've only got data since 2015, but basically rents flatlined since then with the median rent in 2018 being $550 a week. Well, it would have been very similar back then because it was positive cash flow. It yes. would have had to have so the rents been very mm. high. So the rents haven't changed. Rents probably, if not, maybe have gone maybe down. Maybe gone down. Yeah. So yeah. so basically, anybody bought following that advice would have been a fool because they probably bought brand new. They've experienced little, if any, capital growth, and now a pretty ordinary yield of four point five percent. What so, they got though was depreciation. Oh, yes. Well, that's definitely <laughs> not a good reason to buy property. So the number one on the list, cool. Number two on the list, actually, I'm going to save this to last because this is the only good one of the five. So I'll give you a slight, slight um, spoiler there. Number three on the list, Greenwich, New South Wales units. Now, Greenwich is in Sydney. It's in one of the mm -hmm. blue chip areas that, that we like. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is that there's very low sales volumes based on average of less than 60 units selling in a year. Yeah. And it, although in 2012-13 it looked like a large complex, a new complex hit the market as there were a lot more sales in each of those two years, yeah. the median price grow, grew from 437 in 2008 to 625,500. So that's a 43% increase, which is roughly half the median growth rate for Sydney wide yeah. over the same period. Mm. So it underperformed considerably against the rest of the city. And this is in a blue chip area. Yeah. So it just shows that the wrong stock in a good area. And look, the rents have improved marginally actually since 2015. The current median rent's 562.50 a week, which is at 4.7% yield, mm. not too, better than the Sydney average. But really, yeah, you're not going to get rich on that when you get a little tiny bit of extra rent you're getting half the growth, mm. half, um, and it's an expensive area, right? So there are a lot of better investment properties available in that price range at the time in other areas, right? Mm. So basically if you had 437000 to spend back in 2008, you had a lot of other choices than yeah. Greenwich. Yeah. And if you had made those other choices, you actually would have done better. Um, you know, I looked at Neutral Bay as a, as a comparison, for instance. Neutral Bay has got a lot more units, but there's a lot more um, buoyancy in the market and yeah. a lot more attraction from multiple 
Firepool. So the yeah, I mean, the- Greenwich is a beautiful suburb. Um, I would live in Greenwich and own a house in Greenwich if I could. Not a unit though, right? But yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a family suburb. Mm. It's not where, you know, young couples really want to live. It's a bit too far from the city. It's not really got that kind of vibe and the buzz. And that's what units need. They need that kind of younger exactly. demographic wanting them. And so that's, um, you know. The village I, in Greenwich has got about five shops. It's really sweet and there's yeah. a ferry, but it's it's small and it's very family. Yeah, and that's the the problem there. The, the Greenwich houses, you know, great place to invest in 2008. And but still you wouldn't invest in a house because the dollar, the return, you, this is where the yield is important. Mm. You'd have to be spending back then, and I didn't get the housing numbers, but, you know, you might have had to spend two and a half grand, million, sorry, two and a half million on a house and you were not going to get a good yield on that. So no, once again, that's it right. comes down to opportunity a- cost. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, you guys love Sydney and, you know, you want to buy houses in Sydney and they're just all too expensive. And, the, you know, that is true. It's very hard to, if you're a pure investor in Sydney and you want to buy houses, a lot of suburbs have gone out of, the, you know, basically been ruled out because they've got yeah. too expensive. So, you know, Greenwich would have been those suburbs. You wouldn't have bought a house there because the yield you would have got is, and the rent would have been $500 a week, $600 mm. a week, and you would have had to pay, you know, $1.5 million. But some suburbs in Sydney, you can buy houses, you know, for investments because they haven't boomed to that level and you can still get a good rent. So that might be places like in the inner west. Well, um, particularly at the moment, because there are some situations where, yeah, prices have fallen. So there's opportunity there. Yeah, because you could buy a house now for the low ones, um, you know, and you could get $900, dollars a week rent. Maybe not that much because rents across the board are pretty compressed at the moment. Oh, I, you, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe. But there is, you know, you know, there are examples um, where, you know, you, you know, houses in Sydney, that low, you know, one range is, you know, could be a good investment, I think. So we're of our list of the, the five um, suburbs on this list, we've done two, both of which you'd been a fool if you bought. Uh, the fourth and the, sorry, well, the third and fourth, I'm saving the best till last, are both in mining towns. You'll love this. So Dysart in Queensland. Um, now, at the time, Mr Cameron said that in another instance, residential investors in Dysart, a mining town in central Queensland, would be seven to seven and a seven thousand eight hundred ahead of expenses. Now, the problem, of course, we all know now about the mining boom. Nobody worried about it in two thousand eight. Um, in this particular suburb, Dysart, one hundred and one houses sold in two thousand eight, and the median price was three hundred and seventy five. The boom was already in full swing, having started in two thousand three, when the median was only forty one thousand seven hundred and fifty. So. In five years, it went from 41,750 up to 375,000. That's a massive growth. No wonder people are piled into the party. Mm. Loads more stock came on the market. It peaked at 129 houses selling in 2011, and the median price at that point peaked at 569,000 just after that in 2012. Wow. And then the boom absolutely skidded to a halt. Prices plummeted, falling off a cliff. The median price in 2018 was, you want to hazard a guess? $100. So be careful because with a median rent at $200,000 currently, so anybody who bought last year, you'll be experiencing great cash flow at 12.7% yield. However, the vacancy rate's actually 4%, and that's uh, using SQM, so it's using Louis Christopher's um, website. And while not diabolical, it doesn't inspire confidence in that yield continuing. And basically anyone who took any advice to buy into this suburb back in 2008 would have been a fool. Not only 
losing 78% of their value over the following 10 years, but potentially being trapped, right? The yeah. other one, I'll get another one before you talk about this, Port Headland houses. Oh, yep, okay. Another mining <laughs> town. Uh, in 2008, 65 houses sold. Median price was 860000 Now, same as Dysart, big money had already been made with the boom having kicked off in 2003 and the median back then was only 215000 So prices had rough, actually exactly quadrupled in five years. That's pretty bloody good. Mm. Um, the median price peaked at one point, just over $1.2 million in 2012 <coughs> before really? once again prices fell off a cliff. Median price, 2018, $300,000. So current wow. median rent, seven seventy five. So anyone who bought last year, I can't imagine many people buying last year, but yeah. some have, um, currently experiencing great cash flow, 11.2% yield. Vacancy rate is 2%. So, you know, that's not too bad. It's been there for about two years. Yeah. So, But anybody who bought in 2008 would have lost 58% over the following decade of their value. Well, and... Subconsciously, they would have thought that it was worth 1.2 at one point because you're saying there in 2011 it peaked at 1.2 mm. million. I actually think that's the same time when I had a client buy up. Now, <gasps> I wasn't before I started the business, I was working at a company. Um, you know, she came to me and she said, Look, we've just, um, and she hadn't bought, she'd already bought it, sorry. And uh, they were getting, you know, $1,800 a week rent. Um, which is crazy money. And it was a $1 million purchase. Um, and I remember saying it was a young family that just had their second baby. Um, their husband worked in the mines as well. And yeah, they, that house is probably only worth 300,000 now. So pretty scary. I mean, there's one thing, and that's the thing with chasing yield. And this is what this report was all yeah. built around was positive cash flow. And if you chase yield, because you go to the place where the highest yield is, there's a risk attached. Well, and that additional rent would not have made up for the $500,000 they've lost. Well, no. I mean, their rent's now dropped. It's not $1,800 a week rent. Now mm. it's $700 a week rent. And so... So out of the five suburbs, I've just covered off four. There's one that actually, you know what? You would have done well if you'd actually followed this advice. Mm. Surprise me, actually, because it's Chipping Norton. So New South Wales. So it's just out near Liverpool Way. It's further than my 10K radius, so I've mm. never ventured out there in terms of buying property. Um, the problem, okay, there is a problem here. There's little, very little sales volume, so an average of less than 50 units sell a year, which can be good if demand is high, but it can also be reflective of, of the stock being out of the context for the area, i.e. it's not a high unit area. Yep. The good thing was there really was no new development out there, so it was existing stock that was, that was being sold, so prices hadn't been inflated or rents hadn't been inflated because of the new stock. The median price was at 2008, 275000 and in 2018, 560000 mm. which is a, you know, decent, decent return, okay? And um, also, look, rents have flatlined since 2015 with the median rent uh, currently 435, which is around a 4% yield, which is actually better than the Sydney average. Yeah. But no longer in positive cash flow, cash flow territory, of course. But at the end of the day, these people who bought, if anyone followed that advice back then, they get a decent yield compared to the rest of Sydney and they probably doubled their money in 10 years. So yep. I'm giving that a thumbs up. So one yeah. out of five. Yeah, I mean, that, that strategy has worked. And I think a lot of people, you know, see property in Sydney and think, well, I did the right thing and I know how to buy a good property. I mean, I've got a client who did something similar to that. Um, young guy, he bought a unit, you know, far out of suburbs of Sydney 
you know, he was from there. Um, and yeah, it's a similar story. He paid roughly 200. It's worth maybe 450, 500 now. And, you know, it's done really well. And I think a lot of the market forces, low interest rates, a fear of missing out, you know, a lot of investors coming in, um, you know, a real shortage of housing and it has done well. Whether that asset will do well over the next 10 years on current prices, I think that's a bit of a different story. So, you know, if you had that asset, you know, it now you'd now be thinking, do I get out? And do I take my money and run? And the problem there is, is once you then take out capital gains tax, you know, the maintenance and things like that, these returns don't look as good. So, mm. you know, and so I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's probably done quite well, but the question is, what do you do with that now? Even yeah. if you did do that. So look, I wrote a blog, uh, last year called, what was it? I'll put the link in the show notes anyway, it was something around don't sell or don't keep lemons in your portfolio. Basically, don't yeah. sell the wrong property. So quite often when, you know, I think a lot of investors don't review their portfolios and, and we all should and we all need to regularly, whether it be every five years, every two years, however however often we do need to review our portfolios. And sometimes properties do have a bit of a life cycle on them and, and it's time to, to move on and, and uh, take that money and do something else with it. But at other times that's not appropriate because of your life stage, right? Mm. So if you're close to retirement, you're not going to bother incurring all the costs of doing that unless it's part of your debt retirement strategy. So yep. there's lots lots in that. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, that, that's one of the property myths out there is buy and hold yeah. and you should always hold on, never sell your property. And, you know, I, I read that quite a lot sometimes online. You know, people say these things that are sayings and it's like, yeah, don't ever sell property if you've got it, hold it. And that's not true. If you've got good assets and they're good property, definitely don't sell it. But if they're poor assets, you have to realize there's an opportunity cost of not selling that property, whether that's paying down debt or buying other investments. And you've really got to minus that off what your gains are potentially on that property. So sometimes yeah. you have to sell because it's the best thing to do. I think the fundamental thing with that is that you have to understand the caliber of the asset. And then you can make other decisions with that knowledge as a foundation. So, mm. you know, I have a system in my business where we, we do evaluate portfolios for clients and we assess or do an asset assessment on each particular property. We want to know if it's a flyer, a floater or a flop. Flyer, we try to keep at all costs. A flop, we try to get rid of at all costs. And the floater is very dependent upon other factors yes. as to whether you will keep it or not. Yep. Um, now... It's been fun talking about the fills and forecasters today. Um, you can get a copy of this report if you go to our website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, and there'll be a very big, bright, make it red button. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you can press and then you'll be able to get access to the report, which has uh, all the references in there as well. And what we'd love is hear from you as to have you fallen prey to any of these, these uh, predictions What's your experience been in terms of what you've read, what you've listened to and what you've acted on? I mean, at the end of the day, I guess we're wondering who's the bigger fool, you know, um, the forecaster who stuck their neck out or the individual buyer who took their advice. And and we can only you can only make your own mind up on that one. But I, I've explained in this uh, earlier in this podcast is that myself, I feel the pull sometimes to go with these opinions and I really then go and research and check it out. So I can absolutely understand if we've got a few dumbos out there, and I may I mean that fondly, mm. who have gone and acted on some of this advice. And we'd love to hear from you because really we want to help protect and prevent, you know, bad decisions across the board, the decisions that, that hurt us when we make them. So if you can be brave enough to share them with us, please do. Please do. I mean, that's how I've learnt, you know, and that's, to be honest, it's not about reading um, 
you know, I do and, you know, speaking to people, but it's actually through my clients and their stories and what they've done and the good things, the bad things. And, you know, seeing that over, you know, probably the last eight years, pretty much all property and, you know, and, and hearing the property stories and, um, that's, that's where I've learned. And so it's client stories, it's learning from the mistakes of others. And, you know, by sharing your story, you're actually helping other people. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, unfortunately these companies keep going on because when you people are affected by these, you know, uh, spruikers and things like that, that unless those stories get out, they'll just keep continuing to do what they do. And, um, we need to get more out. Absolutely. So this is going to be an annual report. So remember to get in touch and let us know when you hear or see a prediction that you'd like us to keep tabs on. So you can contact us via the website. Just remember to include a link so we have a reference. And once again, via our website, you can send us a question as well, or just some feedback on your own experiences. Please join us for our next episode when we interview Cecile Weldon. Now, she may not be a name known to many property people, but I tell you what she should be because she has developed this thing called the 17 Livability Features. And what this is all about is a whole conversation that we have with Cecile around the things that you can do within your home to make your home A, more comfortable, B, reduce your running costs and see increase the value of your property and and I see that as being very much a long-term proposition but there's some very interesting things we talk about in this episode and you know I'm going to go and apply some of them to my own home straight away so tune in and you'll know what you can do very simply and easily and in many cases cheaply to actually improve the livability of your own property. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.